Let's turn our attention to God's Word. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we will pick up the reading in verse 23. And as you either turn there in your Bibles or look on in your bulletin, I just want to underscore the fact that this is an unusual choice of a passage for a Sunday that is focused on Thanksgiving. But I want to remind you, this is an unusual year. Um, And I think sometimes unusual years and circumstances require an unusual passage and maybe a little peculiar of a reflection. I believe the message that's before us today is not um, typical in some ways for um, expositions here at Cornerstone. Um, We will stay reflective and we'll hover a bit among a number of things regarding this passage in the text of Scripture. And you are used to doing deep dives with me in specific texts. And uh, we will return to that in very short order as we begin Advent uh, next week. But taking one Sunday on this anniversary and focus of Thanksgiving to look into what I believe is a passage that you're very familiar, you actually hear me quote from memory each week before the Lord's table, these words of institution as they are known in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for the Lord's Supper. But what you may miss in this text is, I think, really important to where we are. Almost a throwaway hint of Jesus' own heart of thanksgiving in the midst of the institution of the Lord's Supper. And I see a myriad of beautiful ironies that drive us to the very deep heart of what a thankful Christian really is to look like. And I think we see it here in this text, and I hope that you'll bear with me as we consider it together for a few minutes. God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, or after He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup and after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we pause now in your presence, having heard your word read in our midst, we would plead that you would grant to us the presence of the Holy Spirit to illumine this word, to enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might behold the wonders of your grace. We ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the last couple of decades, it's been uh, interesting to see um, a number of medical doctors, um, therapists, psychologists, and others note the importance of giving thanks for our health, whether physically emotionally or mental health, the importance of pausing 
in the midst of a busy and often heavy laden, difficult, challenging, trial filled life to pause and as one medical journal said this week, count your many blessings. Didn't finish it and name them one by one, which is the song that you remember. But the thought is there. And they argued that if you desire to have a contented and joy-filled life, you're going to need to inhabit the practice of thanksgiving on a regular interval. Now, we know this simply phenomenologically. I think experientially, if you can transport yourself to a memory of a time where your disposition was thankful, if it's not maybe this morning as you come into the presence of the Lord, you might also recognize your soul in those moments to be more at ease, uh, more patient with people who are around you, more cheery dispositionally in how you look and perceive the world, more hope-filled, easier to get along with with the people who are around you because your eyes are filled with the abundance of the things of which have been provided. You are aware of your blessings. One of the ways in which we make the load of life, and the load of life is heavy, it's often referred to as a toilsome life, even in the Scripture, using a language of heavy laden, that reference to the passage that David actually just noted, the light and easy yoke of Christ comes with this idea of heavy laden is often the experience of our life. If you know how to make um, that load heavier, or if you can think of it this way, a way to make that load heavier is to constantly dwell on the heaviness of that load. And then talk to others about the heaviness of your load. If you sure enough want to dominate your life and double, as it were, your load, keep talking about how heavy it is. But if you begin to speak about thanksgivings and blessings and tune your heart to be able to be aware of the riches that have been provided for you, you'll feel that load uh, lighten. And that's true individually for us, but it's also true of, of faith communities of the church, it's true of our families, our neighborhoods, and, and yes, believe it or not, even of a nation. Um, our social fabric is often torn at in any relationship when we are constantly discontent or griping or voicing those complaints. Robert Hughes calls this a complaint culture. When, whether it's at work or in a church or in any context, when you're with people who just bring you down in the way that they think and speak, you're going to find yourself, as Christine Pohl put it, wanting to be anywhere but there. You know this feeling? Where you begin to experience around this individual or around this community that all things that are good just get sucked out. And all of life gets shriveled up, and you begin to look for someone else to talk to. You know this experience with others. It happens in relationship. It happens individually in our souls, which may be one of just the um, phenomenological reasons why the Psalms, when it calls us into our gatherings for worship, is constantly uh, speaking to us of praise and thanksgiving. We are to enter His courts with praise. We are to have thanksgiving on our lips to give testimony, just as we just did, in the assembly of the upright. 
the center of the worship gatherings that the Lord has called his church to, we are to be a people whose eyes and hearts are peeled for the goodness of the Lord and the sharing of it with one another so that we can be built up in love, even as we read from Colossians earlier, the kind of harmony and the unity of the body of Christ comes when we're building each other up to look to the goodness of God and the things which he has accomplished. If I can put it this way, There's no true worship where there is no thanksgiving. There's no true worship where there is no thanksgiving. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 speaks to this uh, young church, this fledgling congregation that has all kinds of trials as many of the churches in the early church uh, experienced. Just read through the book of Acts and you see attacks from local governments. You see trial and persecution that those uh, congregations and fellowships are going through. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, I want you when you gather to give thanks to God the Father At all times and for everything in the name of the Lord. Gathering where thanksgivings are not to be on your lips. And you are not finding a reason by which to offer thanksgivings. That's a powerful word from the Apostle Paul. Now if you pause and just take in that word for a minute, maybe in your mind you're like, yeah, but Paul didn't live in 2020, right? I mean, he he didn't know, right, what it is that we're going to go through here. Surely he's just either slightly crazy or he's not lived enough life to know how difficult things are. Well, let me just remind you of the fact when the Apostle Paul wrote those words in Ephesians chapter 5, he had been scourged five times. He had been beaten three times. He'd be imprisoned multiple times. He'd been stoned outside of a city, left for dead, then went back in the city and began to evangelize again. So before we get on our high horses, thinking the Apostle Paul is kind of naive about how hard 2020 is, I think he knows something about that. He's got lots of street cred to be able to speak to us about Thanksgiving as a man who experienced unbearable pain and difficulty in suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And i just like to suggest to you he's not a crazy man. Now it's a little harder empirically to prove that, right? You have the history of his sufferings that he went through. That's a little easier to appeal. But let me just remind you, he was a brilliant man taught by the teacher Gamaliel, one of the leading teachers in Jewish history of his generation. You can read about him even now. He was widely esteemed among the intelligentsia of his day in Jewish circles. He became the apostle to the Gentiles and the most influential movement leader of the early Christian church. This was a man who has written to us the most precise theological tones that we have in the New Testament. And so to question this man being a little off his rocker or his mental health being in question, to say something so bold as to give praise to God at all times and for everything. You mean illness, Lord, in a situation of illness? You mean my loss of a job? You you mean in a failed relationship? You mean in 2020 at all times and for everything? You're really calling me into this? Paul's was in, yes. That's exactly what I'm calling you to. I think that we need instead... Not try to come to the conclusion that he's crazy or naive, but that maybe he knows something we don't know. Maybe there's a secret ingredient to thanksgiving that the Apostle Paul 
has within the reservoir of his own soul that he wants us to know in order for us, regardless of circumstances, to be able to be brimming with thanksgiving and praise to Almighty God. I want to look at what I believe is the secret in our time together today. And in order to do that, I want to just again note that for those of you in here and I believe there are probably a number of us, even though I don't know everybody's story at this moment in this room, and I haven't in each of the services uh, this morning, there are certainly burdens and sorrows and sufferings that are right now maybe at the top of your heart. And thanksgiving is one of these things, as you speak about it, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to you. It's as far from where you can get to where you are right now. And so a part of you may feel or may sense even a little resentment that we've got to talk about this matter right now when really you'd prefer me preaching from a psalm of lament today to talk about the suffering of 2020. That would be appropriate for us to do. And I want you to know as we're talking about Thanksgiving, we are not, I'm not asking you to stuff down in your soul the things that are painful. Paul is not Pollyanna here in this text. He's not saying, oh, just look on the bright side. Pretend there's not a pandemic that's taking lives. Pretend there's not racial tension that's dividing a country. Pretend there's not political strife at every level. Pretend there's not a plummeting bottom line in your business and checking account. Pretend that there's not tension in your marriage like there's never been before. Heartbreak among your children like you've never experienced. Paul is not saying, just give thanks. Just come in and give thanks. Just put all that aside. He's not doing that. Paul knew how to lament. You see that over and over in his letters. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 how the apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He tells us that he cried out three times to the Lord to be delivered from his thorn in the flesh. Three times he cried out. The language there is of a strong cry, a a desperate cry to the Lord to be relieved of that which was plaguing him. We don't know what it was, at least not with clarity. There's lots of opinions and thoughts out there. A physical malady potentially of some sort. A spiritual oppressor that may have come and given him oppression in the midst of his ministry? We, we, don't, we don't know. But as he cried out to the Lord, he did so with lament and with petition. And yet, as he cried out to the Lord, the Lord did not relieve him of the thorn in the flesh. I just I want to note something. I think especially as we see numbers of the virus go up and Thanksgiving plans be completely turned upside down. That we have prayed since early part of 2020 that the Lord would take COVID-19 away. And his his word to us today is not yet. We've cried out. Many of us have fasted and prayed, pled with the Lord from the promises of His Word over many facets of what have gone through in 2020. His answer at this point is not to take away our proverbial thorn in the flesh. You know what His answer is for us? It's the very same answer He gave to the Apostle Paul. 
He said to Paul in his moment of suffering and trial, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. It is enough. My grace for you. Now, I think that's critically important to this secret that the Apostle Paul has to thanksgiving in the midst of suffering. And I just want to put it out there on the table. No, you know, special point coming behind a curtain here. Grace is the secret ingredient of thanksgiving. My grace is sufficient for you. That's the word that the Lord is speaking to us today. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century knew this because he said, grace and gratitude belong with one another in the way that heaven and earth belong together. Grace, he said, evokes gratitude the way a voice evokes an echo. Gratitude follows grace in the way that thunder follows Lightning. Grace and gratitude. Inseparable. Now that theologian is picking up on something the linguists have known for years. We just look at the language itself. In Latin, the root word for gratitude is gratia. It is the word grace. The very heart of the word gratitude arises out of the foundational root word of grace. You go, well, that's Latin. Well, let's use Greek then, because that's what the New Testament is written in. The the word for thanksgiving in the New Testament, the word that's actually used here in verse 23 of our text, excuse me, 24 of our text, when Jesus had given thanks, the word is Eucharistia. Inside the word Eucharistia, giving thanks, is the word charis. You can hear it, Eucharist, charis. It's right there in the middle of the word. That's the word for grace. It's the word for grace. Eucharistia at its very center has the word for grace. In in a sense, it's indicating to us that within thanksgiving, within the giving of thanks, the orbit of thanksgiving is around grace. It's the center of the word. There is no thanksgiving in the Greek without grace. That's what it's speaking to us. There's no thanksgiving without grace. All of it's grace. Now when you hear that word, Eucharistia, I hope some of you, church history buffs as you are, Church tradition buffs, as you may be, coming and hearkening even from other church traditions, you may hear the word Eucharist. Eucharist is, of course, the classic language in the Anglican tradition and in Roman Catholicism. You'll hear this in ancient faith traditions. We also utilize the language, but to a lesser degree, in our own discussion of what we will celebrate here in just a few minutes, the Lord's Supper. It is referred to as the Eucharist. And you should not be afraid of that language like, oh, that's weird. That's a little mysterious and strange. It's just the word for giving thanks. And it's right out of our text. It's right out of our text. Verse 23 and 24. Jesus took bread and after Eucharist, he broke it. 
That's what it is. He gave thanks. This, this word, Eucharist, is indicating Jesus' own gratefulness for what it is that he's instituting, for what it is that's taking place in this moment around this supper, what's being accomplished, what's being forged. That the supper itself is administered and instituted by thanksgiving. It comes, it's the on-ramp, it's the runway into the administration of the supper. That he pauses in the taking of the bread and he eucharists. Now if you can see that grace and thanksgiving go together in the text, it's no surprise then, is it, that this table we refer to as a means of grace to us. It is a thanksgiving meal that is full of grace to us. It's right there in the text. It's just the language of the text simply doing its work. Now that's really surprising. And it's really surprising if you begin to say, well, what if the Apostle Paul, as he's recounting Jesus' context, and Jesus in the historical moment, which you can read about in Luke 22 or any of the ends of the Old Testament or New Testament Gospels, you'll read of the institution historically and the narrative there. In that moment, if Jesus was giving thanks for his circumstances, it would make no sense whatsoever. In 24 hours from the moment that he institutes the Lord's Supper, he is dead on the cross. He is dead in 24 hours after giving thanks for the bread that he breaks and for the cup that he administers. There's no way that we can look at this and say he's just delightfully going towards what is an immediately hopeful future. We know better because in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to, in anguish, ask the Father to take this cup from him. So this thanksgiving that he's offering the table doesn't have to do with the pleasantness of his circumstances nor the hope of his future. Let me just paint a little more of the picture. Around the table are his 12 disciples. No one else that he would rather be with than these sweet men who have become like family to him, like Judas Iscariot. Who in the present tense of this passage... On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. Means to say, the present active of the tense is to say, at this very meal, the betrayal is going down. As Jesus is displaying and instituting to them the mission that he has come to accomplish and the grace which he has come to provide in his substitutionary death for them on the cross... He has a deserter right there in the midst. Thankfully, he's got Peter. Who in 12 hours will deny him three times. Thankfully, he's got the rest of the disciples. Who will all desert him within the next 24 hours. There is nothing in his circumstances that he's looking to and going, isn't this a wonderful little supper that we're sharing together? Now, I want you to think of this right here. You go, well, okay, but did he know all that? Yes, he did. 
At this very meal, he prophesies the betrayal. At this very meal, he tells there will be Peter who will deny him. He not only is walking into this meal with the recognition that his hour, his death is coming, he comes with the burden of knowledge in knowing the people that he has trusted most in this life are going to walk out on him. And he gives thanks. And I want you to see what he does. He doesn't just give thanks. He then takes the bread and the wine that is a symbol and a picture of himself and to the ones that will desert him in his moment of death, he gives the entirety of himself to them. My body broken for you. For you. He is pouring on the grace in this supper. My body broken for you. My blood spilt for you. As often as you eat and drink this supper, do this in remembrance of me. And all of you that I'm speaking to are going to leave me in short order. And we always say to ourselves, I'd push back from the table and find some better friends. And you know what Jesus is saying? It is for this type that I have come. It is for this type. It is for the sick is who I have come. It is for the traitors and the deserters and the deniers are the ones in whom I have come for. In this moment as I give myself to them and I know that they will not give themselves to me in the short order of this history, I do so with thanksgiving because what I know I'm about to do is by my grace, I am going to lay hold of them in such a way that they will never get away. I will secure them in my grace. I give thanks, Eucharist, for the grace that's going to lay hold of these wandering souls, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. I'm going to lay hold in grace of these, those whom I love as they trust in me on, in faith. And they see the glory and the power of redemption over time revealed to their own eyes, to their own hearts. It's an amazing picture. You see, when Jesus is giving thanks... He's seeing the mission of his Father accomplished. He's seeing grace won. He's seeing victory over sin and death. Notice he's not died yet. But he's already saying, when you eat of this bread... And when you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's already there. 
He in grace and in faith is giving thanks and he's not taking it from his immediate circumstances. He's taking it from the surety of the promises of the eternal plan of redemption of which he will secure in his cross and in his resurrection. What an amazing testimony of faith. I give thanks, O Father, in the midst of being slayed because I know what it is that you are accomplishing in and through this. And the many more suppers that we will enjoy for all eternity together, secured by the grace that is provided in and through the cross and the resurrection. You know, what's remarkable here is this is not Jesus showing grace to his disciples in the midst of them being slightly indifferent. You know, like, oh, I wish they were more interested in my message or in my, in my mission. This is him showing favor in the face of their demerit, in the face of their failings and their sin, in the face of their rejection. What this means is, is so important for you and me. Do you see, when you come into the presence of the Lord, into the sanctuary, when you come to this Lord's Supper who God attends through the power of His Holy Spirit and meets us in and makes of it a means of grace, when you do that, you're coming in very similarly as these disciples gathered around the table as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And there we all are, good Christians who've been faithful to Christ. I mean, we would never, we would never, like Judas, serve money more than God. And, and choose to betray, as it were, our Lord for a few fleeting earthly pleasures. We wouldn't do anything like that. We would never, in a moment of potential persecution, deny our uh, adherence and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, would we? Oh no, I will be faithful when that day comes knocking. Are you sure? None of us are absolutely sure to the moment that that happens. Friends, you have to walk in faith to trust that the Lord would grant you grace in the moment, even when you would potentially deny Him before those who would do you harm. We need souls that are prepared to stand strong in those moments. But here's what this text is teaching us. Is that we have a Savior whose grace is stronger even in the moments where we desert Him. Even when we desert Him, His grace is stronger and runs after us, captures us, brings us back home. Isn't that what He does with Peter at the end of the Gospels? When He takes a walk with him and reverses those three denials as He assures him of His love and He calls him into the work of ministry, He's saying, yes, you denied me before men. But my grace is strong enough to secure you even in the midst of your denials. Friends, we need grace like that. And you know what? It was that grace, I believe, that made Peter the kind of stalwart he would become. A man who would ultimately stand fast in the midst of tremendous persecution. But he had to know that he was a deserter at heart. But he had a Savior who didn't desert him when he deserted him. And that strengthened him in thanksgiving for the work of proclaiming his death until he came.
Tolkien uses the phrase in one of his wonderful essays on fairy stories, this term called eucatastrophe. Have you heard of it? Eucatastrophe. You, you can hear in it the combination of Eucharist and catastrophe. <laughs> right. Eucatastrophe. It, it's the moment in a fairy story, according to Tolkien, that where every, there is no hope. All the resources have been spent. There's no way out of the, the pickle. Defeat is inevitable. And then out of nowhere comes grace. Out of nowhere comes rescue. In the midst of catastrophe, Eucharist, grace and thanksgiving, surprising joy, a glimpse, as Tolkien would put it, of the world beyond the walls. The world that we're made for. Do you realize that this moment is a eucatastrophe? Everything is unraveling at the seams. And nothing is unraveling at the seams. That in the greatest defeat, we have the greatest victory. And you know why that's so important? Because look at you and me. We are a catastrophe. David, I appreciated your honesty. In your words, zen-like calm, not so much. For such, Jesus has died. Eucharist. Catastrophe. Eucharist. Catastrophes. Eucharist. For the likes, Jesus has died. For the likes of us, He has died. He, has, he is taking us to a surprising joy, to a shift in the midst of our darkest days, to understand the bright designs of the light of His salvation. The only way that you will ever have enduring thanksgiving is if it is rooted in eternal grace. The only way that you will have enduring thanksgiving is if it is rooted in eternal grace. Listen, temporal thanksgivings are appropriate, good and right and true. But temporal fades over time. Temporal has an expiration date. Eternal grace does not. And the difference between a world, an unbeliever, who can give thanks for the many things in their lives temporally, the blessings that they've received, and even acknowledge that they haven't earned everything and that they're not entitled to everything. When an unbeliever recognizes that and senses, someone has been kind to me. <laughs> like Things have fallen in pleasant places. I don't have a full explanation for that. That's a grace to see that, even for any of us. But an unbeliever who says, I thank you for my children. I thank you for the provisions that you've given to me. Children will come and go. Provisions will come and go. Temporal things will pass. The difference between a Christian and an unbeliever in the midst of thanksgiving is our Eucharist is charis at the center. It is grace at the center. And Jesus is saying for us in 2020, I know there are sufferings. I know there are things that are falling apart. He has not promised 2021 to be better. But he has promised all eternity to be nothing but pleasant lines fallen in the places of all of his disciples. And he is calling us this Thanksgiving to Eucharistia. To a Thanksgiving that arises out of grace.
and to know that no matter where we are, and no matter what circumstances or how dire they may become, there is a reality on which our life is founded that nothing in this world can change. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Father in heaven, what a beautiful truth. What a remarkable, strong place, glorious place to stand, to know that there is an enduring grace that's beyond the pale of circumstances, that holds us near to you, that around about us even right now is your everlasting arms holding us, whispering these truths into the hearts of your children. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe and wills to walk according to this light that we might be ambassadors giving testimonies to a thanksgiving rooted in grace that more might come to find as their dreams of an American dream fade. That there is a divine dream A plan from before the foundation of the world that was set in motion by a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who have come to redeem the world and have paid the penalty for the sins of His people who are reconciling all things and will make peace by the blood of the cross. Let us dream that dream. And let us know it to be more than a dream. Let us know it to be the truth and the reality on which we live and move and have our being. Lord, again, surprise us with this grace that we might give to you. The praise and the thanksgiving that you are worthy of. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.